Welcome to Fear Less, an audio series designed to help you take action towards letting go of your eating disorder. My name is Jessica Flint, and I'll be your guide to helping you embody the recovered version of yourself. Like every human being ever to walk this planet, you and I are not immune to fear. It is biologically programmed into our brains. At the same time, I'm committed to not letting fear control my destiny and want you to have the same freedom. Every time we choose courage over fear, we grow stronger and receive what we desire most in regards to our recovery, our health, love, wealth, and impact in the world. In order to fully let go of your eating disorder and whatever is holding you back in life, you need to learn how to alchemize fear into courage. So let's lock arms and do this work together. Welcome back, my warrior loves. Today, we are going to answer a listener question from Amber, and it's related to feeling tired and frustrated in her long 25-year battle with an eating disorder and her concerns with whether weight restoration is necessary to actually do the healing work on the trauma that has led to her eating disorder to exist in the first place. And so along for this fearless journey is my co-pilot, Andrea Wells, the new host of Recover Strong. Mm -hmm. Welcome, Andrea. Hi, welcome. I'm so excited to get into this. And um, Amber wrote us a really thoughtful and introspective email, and I'm excited to, to give her our thoughts on this. Yeah, this is a juicy topic. I feel like when we were going through this email, it was very long, so we're going to kind of condense it. Uh, but there was just so many threads to, I, I feel like I could talk about this all day, months. We really. literally discussed I mean, if lot. we should do this multiple episodes to, <laughs> to yeah. address this email. Like there's a lot in there. <laughs> there's a lot in here. So I'm going to get started with reading the questions. We're all on the same page here. So Amber says, hi, Jessica and Andrea. I've listened to the letting go of fear of judgment and others' opinions about you episode over and over. And I wanted to comment on it. So I decided to send this email. I totally agree, Jessica, that eating disorders are undiagnosed, undealt with trauma. I don't think it is controversial either. It's your truth and true for many others. I'm also excited for Love and Learn because I feel like that's where I'm at too. I understand the societal impact and body image is important for some people, but I've always been so confused about my eating disorder because I don't relate to most of the info or help out there for people with an eating disorder. And that's what fires me up. So that's what fires Andrea, mm. Amber up. <laughs> we got to find what fires us up in life. Uh, so and that's what fires me up. When people talk about eating disorders being caused by society, and that's as deep as it goes. It's so much more than that for me anyway. I wanted to ask your opinion if you feel comfortable giving it. As I said, I've always been confused about the eating disorder because I don't relate to the typical experience or information out there. I have a good psychologist now who has many years experience with severe and enduring eating disorders, and she says everything you have said about it being trauma. I agree, but I think there's something else. There are three layers, coping mechanism, trauma, and something even below that. I have tried the typical treatment like food focus and weight restoration and therapy, of course, but there's something that is still there, and that's where I get stuck. So my question is, do you think it's necessary to be fully weight restored before working on the trauma in that other area? I've done eating disorder recovery before, and it doesn't help. I'm so frustrated and confused. 
I'm ready for the real work. I feel like the eating disorder will just slip away as I go along the journey. It's the constant focus on the eating disorder that keeps it present. I'm not saying, like I've heard you say before, that the food stuff and work with dietitian isn't important, but it can't be just that. I'm so sick of it. Uh, and Amber also says that she has a deeply spiritual side, which is hard to share. People don't understand it and are scared of it, which can be difficult in mainstream hospital settings. Um, and she goes on to say, you know, more that I'll probably tie in here in as we go through the show. But let's just start here with, you know, the the question coming in around weight restoration. Is it necessary before doing, is it necessary to do the healing work on the trauma without being weight restored? And, and then we have some other kind of things that we can pull on here about, well, what do you do when you feel like nothing actually works? Like you've done, as Amber said, I've done eating disorder recovery before. So we really want to unpack like, well, what does it mean to do eating disorder mm-hmm. recovery? And, you know, what is recovery for you? So, Andrea, how are you feeling? So let's, let's uh, yeah, dive in here. What's, what's your take, your start on this question? Yeah. Well, I, I know for both of us, it is important right off the bat talking about weight restoration to make it clear we are not doctors, we are not medical professionals, but we are people who work in a company who helps people with eating disorders. We have our lived recovery experience and we are exposed to a lot of content and information from professionals and dietitians. So uh, I took a little bit of time to gather some of that information that we have you know, put together on our, on our own website, on other websites, um, to address this topic for Amber. So I'll get into some of the stats that I found around weight restoration. So her main question here is, do you think it's necessary to be fully weight, weight restored before working on the trauma? And I totally understand asking that. I know that weight rest- weight restoration is hard. Uh, dealing with the body changes and the uncomfortable emotions that come with that is hard. And it's only fair that you're like, can I, can I not do this? Is there a way to recover and not do this part? Um, the reality is, is that it is a really crucial and important part of recovery. And there is some science behind this. And I'm going to share with you um, a quote from an eating disorder psychiatrist who works at the John Hopkins Eating Disorder Treatment Center, um, a, psychi- a psychiatrist named Dr. Garda. And uh, Here's a quote from them. They say, our brains consume 20% of our daily caloric needs and a starved brain simply does not think clearly and talk therapy is less effective when someone is in a starved state. So that kind of answers your question right there, I think. And there's more that we can get into with this. Um, like there's some more research around relapse rates and weight restoration. Um, the John Hopkins Eating Disorder Treatment Center also found that with weight, when weight was restored at program discharge, there was less rates of relapse six months six months later, and that's that's powerful as well. That really shows you that it is important for the longevity of recovery. Again, I understand really wanting to be like, do I have to not do this part? <laughs> it sucks. It's uncomfortable, but it really does pay off in the long run, according to all you know tons of research and information from professionals and eating disorder treatment centers out there. Um, there's another study that has linked um, early weight gain in recovery to longer-term success in a treatment plan and recovery. And also, it's really important when we're talking about this to always, when possible, seek professional help, work with a dietitian, work with a treatment center when you can. That's really important because there can be actual complications from um, trying to feed yourself and do weight restoration. It's really 
important to consult with a professional when you can. That's something that came up a lot when I was reading this stuff here. There's something called refeeding syndrome. So that's important as well to be aware of. Um, Another study reported that patients who had their weight restored reported psychological improvements, including less depressive symptoms. Um, So there's just a lot that goes into why it's so important to do this. It really is a physiological need. And if you've ever heard of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Oh, do you want to get into that later, Jessica? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So first, Andrea dug up so much. So much. There's a lot. Like, That's background. not even so, all of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we're like, I'm just like, just in case Andrea goes on for like <laughs> for the rest, because I'm so I grateful could. that you did that all that research. Yeah. Because yeah. there's a lot there. Like there really is. And if you want to dig in your own, like, and that may be, you know, Amber, you may be like, I know that. Like the doctors have told me that. People have told me that. So I want to engage in a simple experiment or a little exercise for you to really understand on on a like a physiological level why weight restoration is is important. And then I, we're going to dive into the Maslow hierarchy of needs. But first, I want you to go through this. Now, anybody who is driving a vehicle or doing something where, yeah, maybe this is not the time to do it. So just understand that you can follow up with this experiment at another point in time. But what we're going to do is we're going to focus on holding our breath. And I'm going to set a timer here. And I encourage everybody to try this, whether you can do it right now. Once again, if you're in a place where it's not safe to hold your breath for a prolonged period of time to really exercise that uh, wisdom and, and don't do anything <laughs> that you could get hurt. Like safety pass out first, please. <laughs> yeah, safety first, please. Uh, but we're going to work on holding our breath for one minute. We're just going to try to get one minute of a breath hold here. And I want you to, you know, take one breath. Don't give too much preparation on this. And we are going to start in five, four, three, two, one. That was a minute. For the whole minute? Oh, my God. I'm a surfer, girl. I can, like, do, like, three-minute breath holds. Don't even. Um, okay. When did I stop? Did you did you keep track of that? It was, like, 20 seconds, I think. Something like that. Oh, okay. I, I think you I said 29. 29. Yeah. But, like, let's just yeah. give it 20. <laughs> so, okay. There cool. is so much to unpack in this simple minute experiment. Like, we could go on for the whole time just talking about this. <clears throat> First and foremost, our breath is... A physiological need, right? In order to stay alive, we need to breathe. We need to eat. Yes. Right? What are some other things that are actually like responsible? Like if you do not do these for a for a certain period of time. Water. Water. Drink water. Sleep. You need. Yeah, exactly. Be sheltered from the elements. <laughs> Even that. You actually 
theoretically, yeah, I guess sometimes it could be under like a bridge. On how intense these elements yeah, are. How yeah, how intense these elements are. <laughs> but you really do need breath, yeah. food, water, and sleep after some period of time, right? So people can really defy these odds and go longer periods of time. There's people who hold their breath for what? I think it's like 17 minutes. There's people who can hold their breath for what? Oh, yeah. There's people who can hold their breath for like insane <laughs> amount of time, right? So there's people who also can go long periods without eating or long periods without having water. But this isn't something necessarily to like look at as a badge of honor, right? Because the brain is not in a really create the brain is not in its best state let's say and when you were doing this minute breath hold you were probably thinking about breath thinking about how much longer till i can breathe or i'm going to not think about breathing because if i don't think about breathing then i'm not going to want to breathe so you're going through this total like i don't want to breathe i'm not going to think about breathing i'm thinking about breathing how much longer can i breathe how long has it been since i breathed last time like you're in this like complete state of like obsessiveness around breath. Breath is like the most important thing to you in this moment. And people who do, or I do with breath hold, the way I try to hold my breath longer is I try to forget about breathing, right? So that's part of when people are, I try to like relax into a state where I don't even like think of breath. That's the same thing that happens to people who go into starvation. I'm not going to think about my hunger. I'm going to ignore my hunger. I'm going to pretend my hunger is not there. But the hunger is there. The breath is there. It's always going to want to come out. It's going to want to be satiated because it's a common, it's a basic physiological need, right? So in this experiment, when you start to see like, why do you get so obsessed about food or why does it feel like food is such a an important driver in someone's life? One is that it's just your brain literally telling you that it wants to meet this need, this very important basic survival need. Now, Andrea, there's. do you have any thoughts on the experiment? And then I have some more on it. Do you have any thoughts, like just your own going through it? Yes. <laughs> that was interesting. And it really, I think I, you can understand, like you can hear this in theory, like, Yes, I understand food, water, breathing is a physiological need. I need to do it. Like you can understand that, but to actually like practice it and it's like, oh my God, all I wanted to do was take a big gasp of air. And I did because my body was like, nah, nah, we need air. Stop doing this. Give me air. And it's kind of like, it's the same thing for an eating disorder. Like your body just wants food. It's a matter of survival as far as your body's concerned. Your body doesn't know that you are willfully depriving it from food or air. It doesn't know that. So it's it, all it knows is that it's missing it. It's going to scream for it. And when you actually practice this, I feel like it really um, it just brings it to a deeper level of awareness to make that connection to how it works with restriction and eating disorders as well. Yeah. And can come and also in this, you can start to like try to think it's like willpower. Like maybe you're like, oh dang, mm. I only went 20 seconds. Like, you know, and here Jessica is going 60 seconds, right? Like, how can this person have more willpower than me and like do this, right? There can all of a sudden be this like comparison. Yeah. I I'm not being I can't do this good enough, or like, or this pride, oh, I can, I can let, hold my breath longer, right? So it's starting to even realize how that can unpack and like how you see yourself in terms of willpower being on the side of, I have a lot of it and I can do it or on the side of like, oh no, I have no willpower. Right. So there, there's something to look at there. And another thing about this experiment, what I find is really helpful is if we look at this being something where 
it's a physiological like need, right? This is an actual necessity, right? a necessity. For survival. Mm-hmm. For yes. survival. And now, Amber, you talked about trauma, that you have a history of trauma. Now, what happens when somebody has a history of trauma is they generally feel unsafe. Their life becomes this backdrop of feeling unsafe in either their body or just unsafe in certain situations, but a general lack of not feeling safe and security, right? So there, these two things can really be uh, like interwoven in everybody in their someone's experience throughout their whole life when working through a trauma or having some undiagnosed trauma or some trauma they're not even really aware of at this point, right? Because we can repress this, guys. We can repress things that are traumatic and especially a lot of the resilient ones out there who are like, I'm okay. I have to be – because sometimes you have to like really be self-resilient and you just have to buckle up and get through life and then you just put on this armor and you're like, mm, like nothing's going to stop me. Like I, I have to do this, right? It's survival too in that sense of just like I need to be self-reliant. So uh, with this idea of trauma, also I do want to say like I believe it's something that people who are more sensitive in their disposition are more likely to have these events in their life that they can perceive as trauma because trauma essentially is something that you perceive that you are not safe in that moment. And so it can be very small things to some people that really do impact another person. Now, if you have this experience of trauma in your life, Amber, do you find it somewhat interesting that you're putting yourself in a continual state of survival with this, and you may not register it in your brain, but your body's registering it. Meaning when you're in this state, when we were holding our breath, and I really hope if you didn't hold your breath, my lovely listener, to to do this, because it's this is an experiment where you need to feel this. You are not in your most, you're not able to access your most creative parts of your brain. You're not able to do the most beautiful healing depth work on your emotions. And you're like, I got to breathe. When am I going to breathe? I can't breathe. When I, but I want to breathe. Well, maybe I'll breathe in 10 seconds. How you know? So it's all of a sudden you're just planning everything around your breath. So it's like to really do that deeper work is so hard because you're not accessing this part of you that is feeling safe, right? So when we're looking at a physiological, just like a dysregulated nervous system, my ner- I, my heart was beating there. I had an increased heart rate. I mean, I was really physiologically experiencing discomfort because I wanted to, you know, hold my breath. And second, when we look at that, is what if I was to continue to do that to my body over and over again, my body would start to get a little confused. It would start to, I would, it would start to create a relationship with my breath and my body where I would probably be much more, even if I wasn't in a breath hold, my body would still be wondering. Breathing would become much more part of my conscious awareness because it would be like, am I going to, am I going to like not have my breath? But it's an automatic thing that we do intuitively, right? Just as eating is something that we can get to doing intuitively where it really does not have this background noise because it's an intuitive process, it's an intuitive thing. But until that happens, till the body trusts that it's going to get its next meal because it continually gets its next meal, then that that's not going to happen, right? Until we can, our body gets this continual breath that we know it's going to come back and we know we're going to have breathing again or, you know, reliable breathing, then we're always going to be wondering, well, when's my breath going to, like, when am I going to be able to breathe? Um, so that's my thought on that experiment. I think there's a lot there. And if you can actually really understand that weight restoration is something 
that leads to you having a fully nourished brain that is more capable of accessing all the beautiful parts of our brain that's not when we're not in survival brain, when we're actually mm-hmm. you know, accessing the parts that are creative, logical, intuitive, in- innovative, right? That we can find solutions from. When we were in that state of deprivation, we were not in a very strong solution-oriented part of our of our brain, right? We were in a survival brain. Yeah. And I think that is perfectly highlighted. We'll get into it now, the um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And it's a hierarchy because you have to, it's enlisted in order of importance. Um, I'm looking at a little pyramid shape here that outlines it and I'll link it in the show notes. So if you want to take a look, I think visualizing it really helps. And at the bottom of that period, the first level, the bottom of the pyramid, the first level that you need to take care of first and foremost in this hierarchy of needs is physiological needs. And according to this psychologist, Maslow, the needs include breathing, food, water, shelter, clothing, and sleep. And then everything else on the pyramid comes on top of that. There's safety and security, like health, employment, family, love and belonging is the next tier, number three. And that includes friendship, intimacy, sense of connection. On top of that is self-esteem. And remember, these are in order. So it's like you have to handle these things first before you can get to the next one. The self-esteem is like confidence, achievement. And then the very top of the pyramid is self-actualization. And that's like morality, creativity, spontaneity. Um, acceptance, experience, purpose, inner potential. And this is all, this is the pyramid. And to really get from one to the next, you have to do physiological needs first. That is the basis of the pyramid. You cannot function. You cannot think properly. You cannot do the deeper work, as Jessica's saying, without taking care of that first level of the pyramid, the foundation, which is your physio- physiological needs. And another thing that I've thought of when I was looking this up is um, like, I watch a lot of shows and documentaries about cults and such a common tactic for these cult leaders to like get people in and and, and manipulate them and brainwash them is starving them, um, not giving them enough food, keeping them in underfed, underslept states, taking away, like not meeting their physiological needs because then it's so much easier to get them under their wing and have power over them. And that's I thought that kind of highlighted as well, like when you're when you're not fed, you're not sleeping or eating properly, like everything else like kind of goes by the wayside. Hmm. Kind of looks like the pr- oppressiveness of like the patriarchy and like women being like yeah, subversive because true. we're like we're hungry. <laughs> um, oh, my God. Yes. Well, and I want to say like you actually can do the actualization self-esteem work when you don't have your physiological needs met, but it's an unstable, Andrea said, it's an unstable foundation, which will continue when we go back to that Jenga metaphor. Like it's going to, if you continue to take out the actual stability of the bottom, it will eventually collapse. So yes, you can work on it, but if you want it to be long lasting and and have a, a real impact, then these areas are, will want to really be addressed and feeling like they're, they're stable and they're stabilized and that there is that yeah, foundation. Like- because Amber's asking, like, can I work on my deeper trauma without um, weight restoration? And it's like, yes, but you are only going to get so far. Like, you're you're going to be pretty limited. Like, yeah, and that and that doesn't count for nothing if you do start to work on it. Like, that all counts and adds up to something in the end. But it's like, if you're striving for long term, deep, holistic recovery that lasts, 
got to take care of your physiological needs first and foremost. Yeah. Like, can I write poetry when I'm holding my breath? Yeah, I can. I can write you guys a poem when I'm holding. Hold- I feel like the weight <laughs> restoration. I feel like there's a lot of hard words in today's show. <laughs> I know. I feel like I'm saying that like wrong. Weight, um, weight restoration. <laughs> weight restoration. <laughs> I do feel like like you were you were struggling a little bit earlier and I'm like, I feel like girl. Um yeah, I can write a poem. I can write a poem holding my breath. But is it gonna be my most imaginative, creative, like birth from my soul poem? No, it's gonna be like like really probably like focused on like yeah, anyways, I can't even imagine what my one minute breath hold poem would be. But we could try that next, another experiment. But my poem when yeah, I am your next experiment. <laughs> poetry if we're holding your breath. Um, but if I was to do my poem with a nourished brain and feeling very safe and secure and, and really allowing that in, like my poem's going to come from a different energy. Uh, but granted, poems actually do do really well when you're in a very uh, heightened emotional state. So that's another thing we could get into on this is like the emotional processing that comes in because... I think we touched on the weight restoration. I think we can stop there because I think there's more to this question. Uh, but mm-hmm. Amber, both Andrea and I think in our perspective, our opinion based off of our own personal experience, seeing other people that we, you know, professionals, the literature, the scientific literature, that you'll have much more success with doing this deeper work when you are weight restored. So that that's our opinion. Yeah. <laughs> and that you may be like, I didn't want to hear that. <laughs> um, I know. It can be a hard pill to swallow. It can. It sucks. The last thing you want to do is have to weight restore and gain weight and change your body. It's like, it's not fun to accept that. It's a hard pill to swallow, but I have faith yeah. that people, you can work with it. The The, the rewards are, are well worth it in the end. Now, this second part, which I find really fascinating, and this is the area that I... I really enjoy like the mindset makeover that I just went like through was like totally built upon all this. Like, why do we get stuck in these situations that feel long and enduring, right? You said severe and enduring uh, eating disorder. And so, and that, and I loved how you saw, right? Like I can tell that you have done a lot of work, Amber, on this because you, you come with a lot of wisdom around, okay, there's the coping mechanisms, there's the trauma, and then there's something deeper, right? And that something deeper is this can't feel like this intangible, like, what is it that's driving me to continue to to be in this situation, to be stuck? Like, sometimes words like cursed can come in. Like, I feel cursed. Like, this is like forever, like, going to be my, like, reality. Or I feel like no matter what I do, I, I, I can't escape this, right? So it just feels almost fatalistic. Like, this is something that you, yeah, that you're stuck with. And you used a lot of in your your wording like tired, frustrated, like and and I can understand that is something that can come into this experience, and yeah, I just I want to and and then you've tried like you said that you've tried eating disorder recovery, and so one thing that I want to look at is like what does it mean for you to have tried eating disorder recovery? Um, you know what is what there are many paths to to get to the top of a mountain. Uh, no one, absolutely no one has the magic pill for an eating disorder recovery. Nobody. Do not mm-hmm. expect anybody. If anybody ever tries to tell you that their thing is the only way, like F that. Like that is just a lie. There's no exact way to get to the top of the mountain when it comes to eating disorder recovery. 
I've seen so many different cases of how people have got to the top of the mountain to experience eating disorder recovery, and there's no one try and true way. I've been to tons of these academic conferences, the Academy of Eating Disorders, and every time their data is pretty like, mm, like 50%. <laughs> like, you know, it's like heads or tails, right? Is that what you're trying to tell me? Like, and they're like, you know, we need more research. So like there, there is no one way. Uh, Andrea, I know you have some thoughts on this as well. Yeah, I think the same question comes to mind when Amber says, like, I've tried treatment, I've tried recovery. It's like, well, what? It would be helpful to know <laughs> exactly what that is. And it is important to know, like, and I think it's really common. Like, I see people be like, oh, like, I did treatment or I met a ther- I met with a therapist and didn't really make a ton of progress. Um, I think it's really important to know that recovery takes time, first and foremost. So I think a lot of that worry about recovery not working for you or, or you know, certain modalities not working, I think can come from um, a very understandable impatience because you just want to feel better as soon as you can. It sucks to live this way. Um, the reality is, is that it can take time. And sometimes um, you got to try different things. And I know for me with my recovery, I tried all kinds of different things and it really was not one thing. Like you think of like, a pie chart. My recovery had all kinds of different categories on the pie chart. Some slices were bigger than others, um, but it took multiple things for me. I was in a, a structured eating disorder CBT treatment group for 14 weeks. That was huge. That was incredibly helpful. It set a really strong foundation for me, um, but it still took years of continuing off that momentum. I had a strong base with that, but I had to keep going this is, you know, my eating disorder was something that I had lived with for decades and it doesn't go away after a 14 week treatment program or a six month program or or whatever it is that you've tried. Like it takes time. It gets better little by little. And I, I personally benefited from taking all kinds of different strategies and measures. I did support groups that were not like treatment based, but just support, just community and talking to people who have eating disorders and sharing struggles and connecting like that alone was a really big piece of my pie chart of recovery. And then there's some things that were like smaller, but still helpful, like journaling. You know, I had a little blog that I've mentioned on here. I just kind of talked about my recovery and, and things like that helped or, or workbooks or reading books. Um, there's, there's just like, it kind of made it like a lifestyle <laughs> for a couple of years there. And I embraced everything that I could. Um, and I was also thinking about how like it's really common. A lot of people work with dietitians. I never worked with a dietitian. I wish I did. Um, I think I tried to, but I didn't really know that at the time. And I think there were less of them, but I didn't know that you could like find like an anti-diet dietitian. And I very much was looking for like a diety dietitian. And I had a consultation with one and I was like, this is not for me. It was really triggering. Um, but there's a lot of anti-diet diet dietitians out there now who can help with eating disorders. So like that's something that I never used, but there's that's a resource out there now. And then beyond the different types of things you can do, like different types of cares, like say you get a, a dietitian and say you meet with one and you don't click with them, but you meet with another one and they can like significantly change your life and improve your recovery. Like there's just so many variables. So if you're feeling like, I, I, I why am I still struggling? I've tried so many things and I'm still stuck. That's totally fair. That's totally valid. Um, I would just want to encourage anyone who's feeling that way to keep going, keep trying new things. There are so many things. There's so many types of programs and people and books and workbooks and social media accounts and podcasts and 
all kinds of things out there and you will find what works for you. And maybe it's, you have like kind of me like different rods in the, in the fire, like multiple rods in the fire. Maybe you focus more on one thing, but like, it's not one size fits all. There's so many ways to go about it. There's no right or wrong way. And like, just keep going. You can find it. You'll, you can find your path for this. Yeah. And I know one thing that Amber said in, in the email too, is that she's just sick of like, focusing on eating disorder recovery because she feels mm. like, you know, like, so, and, and I think and that's a common thing, right? Like, okay, so I don't have an eating, so I'm not focusing on that, but now I'm just focusing on recovery. Like, when does it ever end? Like, when can I just not have to be working on myself and all, all of that? And, and one is to start to like reframe that relationship then because you want to see like, because there is an important thing about keeping your eye on the ball. I Because re- I, if you do, mm. if you slip into ignorance, ignorance is bliss at the, that saying, right? Ignorance is bliss until you are aware, until you become conscious, you can no longer be ignorant. And that's actually suffering. And, and Amber kind of talked about that. Like you suffer when you know, and that's the hard part. Like Dr. Carl Jung says, there's no coming to consciousness without pain. And there is a hard thing when you come to consciousness around something, then you realize, oh, wait, I have a choice. I'm an active participant in this. Okay, like there, there are things I can do, right? As before, it's like I'm the problem. I'm this is my struggle, right? And then, oh wait, there's actually things that I I have an eating disorder. I mean, for many of you can think about, there's a point where you didn't even realize you had an eating disorder, right? There was a completely different relationship to your life at that point. Then you realize, okay, there's this thing called a recovery from an eating disorder, meaning I have to rehabilitate myself around food and exercise and like my body image, all of these things. And then all of a sudden, you're like, oh wait. Now I have more responsibility because <laughs> before I could just be kind of like, this is a problem, you know, like this is something that's happening to me or I'm an influence. Like I'm, it's a different situation when you actually realize that now there's skills that you can use. Now there's different tools, all these things that Andrea talked about that you can turn to and you can work with. And there's the opportunity of, or, you know, the chance that some aren't going to work for you, meaning you're going to have to embrace quote unquote failure. You're going to have to embrace things not working, but one really strong a core value that we have of the Courage Club and in Recovery Warriors is everything is figure outable. Meaning, if A didn't work for you and B didn't work for you and C didn't work for you, well, we have a lot more letters that we can go through to find what works for you. And it can be layers of things working. Like you have to get one piece in before anything else can really start to unfold. And so, coming with this radical curiosity around, like, well, what are the pieces that I need to have click into place now? I have heard countless, countless. I was just in the Map My Year uh, workshop this weekend, you know, on screen with a bunch of warriors from inside the Courage Club. And like so many of them said that the Courage Club and they were members from the Courage Club in 2020 and Courage Club in 2021, that like this is the only thing that's worked for them. And they've tried, you know, traditional therapy, they've tried traditional treatment. And this is the only thing that's worked for them, meaning being with other people who are actively in recovery and allowing that silence to be broken, the shame to be dispelled right there, right? Because we're all in this together. There's no judgment. It's all like, yeah, I hear hear you. I feel you. So that for some people is what they need. And for other people, they may be like, I'm a total hermit. I don't want to be with other people and talking about my issues. I want to just put my face in a book and, and study, study, study and write, 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 write. And so and maybe it's a combination of different times that you need different things and recognizing that there is no one way, but there is a way. And, you know, for 
and sometimes, you know, I've always kind of looked at my story in a bigger picture. Like, when did my eating disorder really just take this like big turn? Like I was getting better. I was getting better. But when it just like all of a sudden just clicked, switch, boom, it's like my dad died. Like, and I can't recommend that to somebody like, oh, yeah, you know, like have <laughs> this major like person who has felt like they've been an energy like that you have this like really unresolved issue with them. And if they die, like all of a sudden I can no longer look for any like that was gone in my life. There was no longer this um, fear. There was no longer this control. There was no longer this feeling of of not being able to to connect with somebody and feeling abandoned. I mean, all of it just kind of fell. Like it was no long. It was like this battle was gone. Like there, I couldn't battle it anymore. But now I'm continuing to battle it. Like 18 years later. How many years has it been? When I was 24. So like 14 years later, 15 years later, I'm still now doing the deeper healing work with that. But I just want to say like that is sometimes for us when you say there's something deeper and and it's not, I'm not always saying it's like someone has to die at all. But in my story though, I recognize that some energy shifted in me then. I, I got my first boyfriend after that point. Like after that, like everything just shifted in my life when that event happened in my life. So we don't know when you're saying there's something deeper. I do believe for some people there are deep things inside of us. We have this unconscious that is 90 is responsible for 95% of our behaviors. This unconscious that is the storehouse of our memories, of our beliefs, of our programming, of our emotions, of our instincts. Like there is a deep reservoir there. And of course there's something there when you're saying there's something deeper and you can't like quite there is. And for us to think that it's just this conscious mind that is like running the show. No, there was a liberation when my dad died for me. I could no longer be abused. I could no longer be rejected in that sense. So there was some freedom that my soul felt at a soul level. Was I conscious of this? Not at all. But now I am having done so much introspective work because I am a hermit myself and I do a lot of introspective work on myself going towards that Maslow hierarchy of needs, actualization, right? And so understanding that there is some deeper drives within us that can hold. And I feel like with people who have long enduring eating disorders, there often is some deeper emotional work that wants to be met, some emotions that are unresisted or that are being resisted, excuse me, that need to be experienced unresisted, need to be allowed in to have their place with open arms full love, acceptance of all emotions. And the way I kind of like to picture it is, um, I was thinking about this, how I was going to describe it, is like imagine you have a little litter of puppies and you have like all these cute little adorable puppies and like there's – and then there's like a few in there that just like really look like something like they came out with like three heads, like teeth inside out, like just – whatever like these puppies are like whoa like that's the most hideous thing i've ever seen like and it turns to you and it's just like you know i hate the word ugly but it's just the ugliest thing like it's just like oh my god like that puppy is like get it away from me that's what certain emotions or experiences in our life or beliefs around ourselves can be like this these hideous puppies that really are just a little puppy soul and they want the same amount of love and attention as all the other cute puppies. So all of the emotions that we think are so, you know, like societally acceptable, that we're acceptable of, like, I want to be happy. I want to be joyful. I want to be confident. Okay. Those puppies are all like sitting around. They're like, yeah, yeah. Give me more love. Okay. Like I'm, I'm so easy for me to get love. 
But then it's the shame puppies. It's the puppies, the depression puppies. It's the puppies of rejection, the unworthiness puppy. Like those puppies are going to cause so much destruction and havoc in your life. They're the ones who are going to rip up your underwear, like eat your plants. Like they're going to cause all these issues. I don't know if you've ever had a puppy, but like a puppy can do a lot of damage in a short period of time. You're like, oh my God, puppy. And these are the puppies that like create all this chaos, but all they really want is to be held. All they really want is to be loved equally as the other puppies. They want to be feel like they are part of this whole family. They want to be taken in. They want to be taken care of. So when I feel like we resist emotions, that's when we try to separate these puppies and we try to only love on the good ones. Now, compassion comes in. You may actually think like, well, I really want to like love all puppies and like even these ugly puppies. And that's the same thing you need to turn towards yourself. Because if you can understand that these little ugly puppies are just as much as these ugly emotions within yourself or these ugly thoughts about yourself, they need you just as much. They need you to look at them and hold them and see, oh my God, you are so ugly and I love you. Like, right? I'm not going to pretend you're pretty. Yeah, I'm not going to pretend you're pretty. I'm not going to say that you are. Like, no, like you are hideous. Look how, but I love you. And like, you deserve to be loved. And wow, you know what? You actually deserve to be loved more because of how much love you have been refused, how unloved you felt, how lonely you felt, how abandoned you felt as opposed to all these nice emotions, all these cute puppies, right? These are the ones that get all the attention, but these ones actually have a like deficit. Like they need it even more. So when you come to start to embrace these, you're going to be like, "Oh my god, these crazy needy puppies, like these needy emotions are coming up so strong and they're so ugly and I don't want them." And it's just like, "Wow, the real process is letting them in and being like, "I love you." Okay, you're going to be the neediest puppy, right? You're going to come up a lot. You're going to like want a lot of me right now. Because I haven't given enough to you. I haven't I haven't really shared my life with you. I haven't shared my my love with you. And and you need it and you've always needed it and you will always need it. So I'm here for you now and forever. That's that's a deeper process on the soul level of like welcoming all emotions in and allowing them in with unconditional love. That's beautiful. I almost teared up. <laughs> I'm like thinking of those little puppies. And it's true. If you give yourself that same grace, like you deserve the same grace as all the puppies, the societally acceptable ones. And otherwise, your feelings are the same way. You embrace them. That was beautiful. You have such a way with words sometimes, Jessica. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, are they going to get the puppy analogy? <laughs> like, I got why, it. Why is she oh. talking about puppies? <laughs> um, I'm reminded though, when we bring up society, um, Amber, I just wanted to touch on something that Amber brought up in her email when she commented that she feels like a lot of rhetoric around recovery is like addressing the societal harms and things like that. But she feels like it's just that's not as much of a concern for her. It's kind of more deeper. And I know that I am in my fuck society era right now and I'm (laughs) talking about that a lot. Um, I also want to acknowledge that I'm in this place now because I have I did struggle so much with like what's wrong with me, what's my self-worth, like what's going on with my self-worth and my shame. And there was a lot of deep pain there that I had to work on. And I feel like I'm I'm in a good place with that. So now I'm like, all right, society, you're next. We're gonna tackle you. Um, that's where I'm at, but I just want to acknowledge that, you know, it's not really one or the other. Everyone has a different experience. One of those might impact you more than the others. And Amber, that's totally fine if you know, the societal issues aren't as much of a concern for you and you kind of have deeper trauma things, that's totally valid. And 
um, I want to. And I appreciate the reminder of that, actually, because I am very much in my fuck society era and I'm kind of focusing on that a lot lately. So it's it's a nice reminder for me to remember the whole picture, remember where I've been, remember where other people are. So thank you for that. And there's also temperament traits. Like this is where I love, this is where I find astrology is very helpful in looking at, because there's also looking at people's signatures of air, earth, water, and fire. And so when you can like look at, like I, you know, I've worked, I have countless charts of students. So I, I'm able to start to see like this person really struggles with this like anxiety, like at a such deep level, right? They're probably channeling, they probably have some Virgo energy, like when they, that, that like obsessive compulsive, like I can't stop, like, or, or earth, right? Earth will get very obsessive compulsive, like, and so, you know, I find that, that that's another thing. So, right, like, have you tried that? Like, I'm just saying there's so many different ways to, like, look at who who am I? Why, why am I, like, in this cycle over and over again? And I will – I'm going to send you the Mindset Makeover as a gift, Amber, because I want you to go through it because I think there's some lessons in it that will will help you get a little bit – just another insight on this. The, the real thing, though, is, like – Learning to let go at some point of the identity that has been such a big part of your life of needing to be the endurer, the one who needs to suffer, the one who needs to continually come and meet people with this, it happened again, <laughs> right? Because she mentioned how like, you know, she has to like tell her family like, well, it happened again. And they're like, again, like what happened, right? So starting to really like get intimate with that part of you that is continually creating these experiences and without judgment, right? To just, just almost see, and I, I go deeper in this, but like to see that there, there, there can be a, a relink, like a relinquishing of that, but it, it does take having to let go of, of all these emotions and sensations that have arisen within you experiencing that. We can get addicted to certain pain experiences. Uh, you know, I like to think like if you have a bruise or a paper cut, like why do you still touch it? If you knew it would cause pain, why would you touch it? Like yet you do, right? Like you have a bruise and you keep poking at it. You're like, yep, just to make sure I still have a bruise. Like, oh, yep, let me touch the paper. Nope, just make sure I still like, – like it's a sensation. And so we experience pain. We think pain is bad. Right, because we've we've been socially conditioned to believe pain is not what we want. We want pleasure, but if you start to see that in pain you get some sensation, some aliveness, what human doesn't want to feel alive? Uh, also, when that deadening experience of having the numbness to then feel the aliveness, you get that that duality there. And you know, this is a topic that I could go on for much longer, and I know it's probably just like touching very briefly on this in, in this episode. But just to understand that there's nothing wrong with the way that you've sought out experience and sensation and emotion in your life, but there's different ways that you can go about it. And it doesn't have to lead you to always feeling defeated, always feeling in a state of struggle if that's not what you want. I will say at the end of the day, some people can actually want that. And if that's the case, to then just own it and really enjoy it and be fulfilled by it. And that sounds really wacky and twisted, right? But it's like, well, if you're doing it anyways, you might as well find some enjoyment in it. And then if you don't want it, then really look at what's 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 the deeper work? Where's the 
where's the puppy that you need to hold? Where's that puppy that wants you? Because it is, it's just if you get all those puppies and you hold them all, you won't be struggling with this as much. So it's always looking at that. Like, what am I resisting? What am I not accepting? And is there actually some benefit that I get from this continually being a part of my experience? Even though conscious mind will say, that's ridiculous. I don't want this. But you wouldn't be doing it if there wasn't something that would be that's that's coming from it. And uh, and that's why I'm not uh, I don't take a strong stance in victim. I, I, I'm really one who wants to work against victim consciousness and working towards creator consciousness, meaning that you get to create the life that you want to live, not always super straightforward, like Andrea said, slow, like I embrace turtle energy. Like I have a spirit of a wild horse that just wants to like, run with abandon and just like have no, like I have such a free spirited horse in me, but I'm also a turtle. And I have to accept that, that slow and steady wins the race. As much as I want to just sprint ahead and be this like wild horse, I can't always be that wild horse. I have to be the turtle because that is, I do believe trauma kind of like just kind of keeps you the turtle, trauma turtle. Uh, I've had to wrangle that wild horse in a couple of times, I feel like. Yeah, right? <laughs> Like, I got this wild horse. I'm like, oh, wait, I'm a turtle. Um, and that's almost like his body image. Like, I want to be like this. Oh, but wait, I'm actually this, right? Like, <laughs> acceptance. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like I have this horse. I can be the horse at times. But the turtle is truly the 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 path. And that's the Tao, right? The Tao of turtle. Like, to truly be like, life can be step by step. Embrace it all. And... Embrace the turtle, right? As much as I don't. Slow and steady wins the race. Slow and steady wins the race. So yeah, (laughs) that's our our take on this. Any other closing remarks, Andrea? Yes. Directly to Amber, I want to say something else when she talks about her three layers, she says, um, of recovery. Like there's the coping mechanisms, there's the trauma, and there's something below that for her. And she's like, there's something. She puts it in quotes. She doesn't know what that is. And I just wonder if that something has to do with what she talks about, like her spiritual side that she feels like she has to rein in. I wonder if there's just something more deeper and spiritual there. And I just want to encourage you, Amber, to follow Jessica's lead and embrace your witchy side. And if that fulfills you and helps you learn and heal, like go for it. And, and I don't know, I could be totally wrong. I just, um, I had that thought when I'm reading her email over. Yeah, she talked about the spirituality. She, she did kind of say she didn't know where she was with that. Yeah. But like, you know, that's something deeper uh, like think about your yeah what have you disowned what have you rejected what have you not let in what are you denying what are you not giving space for what are your hideous puppies that you feel are so ugly and look there start to and start to embrace and this is where self compassion comes into practice because this is a part of you that wants to be met um but yeah it could be that spirituality is a part of her that wants to be met that's been rejected that's been denied that's been looked at in a way where it's not safe. Um, and that that could be one area. And there could be many. I think it's like a chiseling and you just keep keep going at it until you really get to to that that deep center of um, of self. I guess that's one thing I, I did want also want to say with this is that when you take away an eating disorder behavior, right? what is what is recovery? I guess that's like the bigger question. and we would say that there really is no one definition of recovery, just as there's no one way to get to recovery. So being able to choose how how it is for you is is one really cool thing to be able to, you know, make that decision for yourself. What does it look like for you? And 
maybe there's different permutations of it. There's like an idealized version and then there's the like, well, you know, I'll settle for this because it's good. Like it's enough, right? And being able to like recognize that you can <clears throat> you can evolve to that state. I totally forgot my train of thought actually. Ah, oh, bail me out. Bail bring, me out. Were you going to bring up harm reduction? Um <laughs> Harm reduction is valid as well. Oh yeah. Well, that no, that wasn't gonna that wasn't gonna come in. Yeah. But harm reduction is. That's what it reminds me of when you're talking about yeah. that. Yeah. So maybe there is just this idea of going like not having to hit this certain expectation and just being open to living a life where you are experiencing less harm to yourself, where you're, you know, just how can you improve your quality of life? Essentially, is is another way. If the eating disorder is continually like robbing your quality of life, then doing doing what you need to do to to work through that. Uh, but acceptance is always a really great start for anything in, in the recovery process. And oh, dang, I wish I really remembered what I was going to say in the closing thought here. Uh, it's okay to not be perfect. Oh, that's another one. Um, yeah. I'm looking at our notes. Do you have a note about it? <laughs> no. Um, oh, it's it's okay. okay. You can bring it up next Brain time. Part. Yeah. 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 Uh, I know. I'll probably remember it like in Save that 20 thought. minutes while yeah. I'm like cooking my pasta. Like, oh, yes, that was it. Uh, yeah. Want, want. <laughs> it's like, oh, we're live. We're doing all our shows live now, guys. And so we like kind of have to roll with this. So I feel like, but you know what? I guess that is just a thing. Like, it doesn't have to be perfect to be wonderful. That was, I remember when I used to send out calendars, that was a stamp. Life doesn't have to be perfect to be wonderful. You're like, this show doesn't even have to be perfect to be wonderful. Your your recovery doesn't have to be perfect to be wonderful. And to seek out whatever you feel is within you. Like, yeah. And, I, and I'll give you the, the mindset makeover so you can do some deeper work on that. Um, yeah. So it's been a pleasure to talk about this topic. I really do find it so, so deep. And that's why I love it. There's so much depth in there. And there really is a lot to recovery. And so many people get to the next stage. Oh, that's what I was going to say. Okay. Um, the... Be- yeah, we oh, got, we got it. it. Okay. <laughs> ADD, ADHD. Uh, uh, no, is that when we take away the behavior of an eating disorder, then what are we left with? We're left with our thoughts, our beliefs, right? Our, our emotions. And these essentially come into how we make decisions. And so when you start to look at like, okay, she's mentioned that she's had periods where Amber has not engaged with behaviors. And then you want to look at, well, Part of being human is that we will have beliefs, emotions, and thoughts, regardless of whether we have a clinically diagnosable eating disorder or not. And so you want to look at, well, then when I'm doing this this deeper work and, and finding my way in, in through this process of recovery, that I can I can't change my thoughts purely, right? Like thoughts will come in, but I can work with thoughts differently. I can be more discerning with my thoughts. And then emotions. You can't change your emotions. You can experience your emotions differently, right? We can't change an emotion. It is what it is, but we can experience it differently. As I was saying, welcome it, love it, accept it. But beliefs, beliefs are things that we can fundamentally work with. Because beliefs, I feel like we we can change. There have been things in your life that you can notably say that that was once a belief and is no longer a belief. Now, when you do work on the belief system, that does help influence the thoughts and emotions. 
So getting towards working towards what are my beliefs and how can I start to work with work with these on on a deeper level? This belief that recovery has to be suffering, this belief that recovery has to be this perpetual thing, this re- belief that recovery has to be hard. Like that's a belief. And so if that's a belief, that will continue to be your experience of it until you change that belief around that, until recovery becomes something that is is a ongoing process that you are excited and curious about. Uh, recovery is, uh, you know, something that actually can happen and will happen. And I can like I can drop the hot frying pan. Like I can drop the thing that I feel is causing me pain. I can just drop it. Uh, it doesn't mean you ignore it and pretend it doesn't exist. But to give yourself that ability to say, I don't need to make this my forever thing. This doesn't have to be what defines my whole entire life experience. That can be a belief system change. I want to experience other things in my life, meaning there are more important things for me to focus on. There are other problems that I want to work on in my life. I could go on more about this. I actually am going to stop because I feel like I could go now into this whole problem thing. So I, I feel like I'm going to stop there. But okay, the beliefs... Cut off. Yeah, I'm cut off. Cut off. We're already almost to an hour. <laughs> like, Don't even get Jessica started on this. Like, I could go on forever. So... <laughs> Yeah, uh, working towards towards the belief system change can be really helpful. So embrace your ugly puppies. Look at your belief systems. What what do you really need to rewrite in your story to change it? What what are the actual beliefs that need to be changed in order for you to to change the trajectory that you've been on or the story that you've been living out day after day, month after month, year after year? And if you want support to cultivate the courage to face your own fears in recovery, head over to www.jointhecourageclub.com to get on the waitlist for The Courage Club. The Courage Club is a personalized support system and a supportive community to uplift you every step of the way. Picture yourself surrounded by a community of resilient warriors who genuinely care about your progress and will celebrate every victory, no matter how small, and are walking on a similar path to full eating disorder recovery. Inside, we are tackling struggles with food, body image concerns, and negative thought patterns. Head over to www.jointhecourageclub.com and embrace the journey towards a healthier and happier you. Thank you for tuning in today. And remember that fear doesn't have to hold you back. You can live with greater courage and take back your precious power.